0: Good morning, church family. It's uh, good to be here with you online today. Uh, My prayer for us today is that our worship will be encouraging to you and pleasing to our Lord. Uh, I'm really excited to share uh, some things that are going on or have been going on with you as we uh, just begin our worship time together. We have a few announcements that we want to look over. Uh, The first is that we will be doing another Sunday uh, evening drive-in worship. Not not tonight, but next Sunday, August 9th, we'll be meeting again in addition to our live stream. We'll be meeting again in our back parking lot in the, on the north side of the building uh, to have a time of singing and reading scripture and just being able to see each other from a distance. Uh, we did this last week and uh, it was, I thought, went really well and we're Already looking to improve things, and it was just really great to, to see each other and to be with each other. So we'd really encourage you uh, all to join us, if you can, and if you would like to, uh, on August 9th, Sunday evening, for our next drive and worship. Uh, we also are still doing our home churches. So we're encouraging people, as we continue to meet online, to find uh, a host family and uh, worship with them. So we can't meet in a large group in the building, but we can meet in each other's homes. We have several people willing to host those groups or are already doing those groups. And so we'd really encourage you, if you are maybe feeling a little lonely at home, contact the office and we would love to help you find a host group. The other thing is, of course, we have our VBS coming up that we're really excited about. Uh, We've had some promos go out. Our, Our registration is... Um, active, so you can make sure to register uh, your kids. And if you can do that as soon as possible, that'd be really helpful uh, to all of us. Um, so that's coming up quickly. So the sooner you do that, the better, especially for Norma. We have to make sure we have all our home kits ready. And uh, so if you can do that today, that would be great. Make sure you share it with uh, other. Uh, f- friends in your neighborhood and let them know that we're doing this VBS because they're welcome to be a part of it as well. I want to say uh, thank you to everyone who supported us in our community can drive. Uh, there's a picture that Chris will throw up here. We collected um, right around 200 bags, which is crazy. Um, we're, we're just so thankful. That's probably around $1,000 or more. Um, so we have two over 200 bags of bottles and cans that we collected from you and from our community. Uh, just really awesome. So thank you for, for that support. All of that money is going to go to help um, our teens in raising money for our City Serve project, which will be coming up later this month in August. We'll be serving uh, the community of Newburgh in a lot of different ways. So we're excited about that. And on that note, if you do know of anyone. Uh, Maybe a neighbor or something who could use a little help um, maybe with yard work or some outside housework Please let me know because I'm looking to fill up our week with jobs like that where we can just help individuals in the community So uh, send me a message if you know of anyone who could really be blessed uh, by our teens Uh, Before we begin, we're going to have our scripture reading here in a moment from Ben Patterson But I just wanted to read one little verse and uh, just say a quick prayer uh, over our our time together. This is from Isaiah 43, verse 1. I shared this a couple weeks ago when I preached, but I I just think it's a very encouraging verse and uh, says a lot about um, just our study through Revelation. Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear. For I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. I think those are just really encouraging words to remember that we belong to the Lord. He has called us by name. So, as we uh, begin this time of worship together, let's, let's just pray together and uh, we'll, then we'll go into our scripture reading. Father God, I am just thankful to be able to uh, spend some time with your people today. Uh, worshiping you and being encouraged through song and through your word and through the message that you have given to Chris. God, I, I just pray um, as we go about our week that we would not live in fear, that we would remember uh, whose we are, that we are yours, that you have called us by name. Uh, be with us this morning and uh, encourage us, give us hope. We pray this all in your name. Amen.
1: the four living teachers and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign. Looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the
2: elders. Good morning, church family. Uh I am so glad that we get the opportunity to worship together. As Kyle said, it's just a it's a good feeling to know that we are uh we're participating in worship with one another. Uh, that's the beautiful thing about the church: is that we uh, we are a borderless nation. Uh, the walls of our houses don't keep us apart. Uh, the walls of uh, the world don't keep us apart. Uh, we are we are everywhere, and we are in communion with one another, fellowship with one another in our worship of our God. And so, this morning. Uh, there There are a lot of powerful messages that come from Revelation chapter five through seven, um, and I think that that's actually one of them that uh, that we are a church that has no no division uh between peoples and we'll get to there uh, we'll get to that point here in just a moment um, i want to I want to go ahead and focus on an image that we see here at the very beginning of this passage. Um, There is this moment in which John sees a scroll, a scroll with seven seals. Now, this is probably not what it looked like. I was telling Kyle, I I kind of cheated. uh, There's a lot to be said about scrolls in the ancient Near East and the Roman Empire and what they represented and what they meant to people. But generally, if a document was significant, it would be a sealed uh, document. And so I've got Two two examples here. Uh, if it were just a, a communication between two people that needed to stay private, you might have a single sealed message, uh, and that message would be broken if it were read. Someone would, you know, actually physically break the seal. And once the seal is broken, it's obvious that it's been opened. It's obvious that someone has has tampered with it. Kyle and I were actually talking just this morning, and I've been thinking about this all week, how easy it is To falsify information sometimes in our in our society. Uh, Norma got a weird email this week from Pastor Chris Dunning uh, that didn't come from me. Uh, Fortunately, she she was able to see that it was uh, kind of a strange odd email that didn't sound like me, Uh, but it was so easy for someone to affix my name to that email to maybe even make it look a little bit official as it came through. Uh, In some ways, the ancient process of sealing an envelope is far more effective than uh, than the security of our modern communications. So someone would receive the message and they would know who it came from based on the insignia on the seal, which would be somewhat difficult to falsify, but then they would also know based on the handwriting that was on the message whose it was, especially if it was someone that they were in regular communication with. They'd recognize the handwriting and say, yes, I can see that this was written by this individual. Paul actually refers to the idea, you know, look at how large these letters are so that you know that I wrote it with my own hand when he writes a letter uh, to the church. And, and that's a way of people knowing not only can you trust the messenger that brought this to you, but you can trust the message itself, the, the thing that you're receiving. It's, it's been sealed By me but it's also known by the writing that's on it. Uh, Of course there were times that you'd receive communication from someone that was tremendously significant and in the time of uh, the Roman Empire there were there were wills and there were deeds and there were uh, seals of of inheritance and things like that that would be uh, tremendously significant for certain individuals. In fact if you came from a wealthy family Uh, A sealed document may be something that would give you uh, an entire piece of land, um, uh, an inheritance that was of substantial value. Emperors would create wills, and those wills were intended to help people uh, know what the, the thought of the emperor was in his succession. Now, of course, a lot of times an emperor would die at the hands of the people that served him, um, and his will would never be read. It would never be something that would be passed on. But in the event that an emperor died under natural circumstances, as rare as that might be, he would have a will, and that will would be executed by several witnesses. Uh, it It would be sealed by several witnesses, and those seals would be stamped on. The emperor himself would stamp a seal on there, and then there would be the executor of the will and also the one that the will was intended for and these seals could only be unsealed in the event of the death of the emperor in the presence of the individuals that have sealed the document um, in the presence of the individual that the the document was to be read by and in the uh, presence of the individual that the will was intended for and all of those seals would be broken by the individuals that were listed usually on the outside and names saying this is ...for this individual or recognized by the seal that was placed on the document. And John sees this this seven-sealed scroll in heaven. And he finds himself tremendously distressed that no one is found to open the scroll. No one is found to unseal this document, whatever it may be, Something, something so tremendously important in heaven... That it's been sealed in the way that only the most significant documents a person might seal would be sealed. And he weeps over it. He, he finds himself so distressed. This, this document, if it's so important that even in heaven it's sealed, why can't it be opened? Who's going to open this document? God God has placed this document in his own throne room. This is something of great importance. No one can open it. And then we get this this message, and I'm not going to put it up on the screen here for you. I I want to read it out loud to you. Uh, You can look in uh, in Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on back sealed with seven seals. of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals John receives the answer who can open the scroll it's the lion the lion of the tribe of Judah this this beautiful powerful image that all israelites were fairly familiar with they were expecting the lion of the tribe of Judah, this, this powerful ruler, this mighty, majestic individual who would come along and set right things that had been made wrong. I use that phrase a lot when I talk about Scripture, but this is, this is the story of Scripture. That God, through some messianic act, is going to make right the things that have been made wrong. He was going to do this through a series of individuals, through a a long process that would build to this lion, the tribe of Judah. But notice also that he doesn't just call him the lion of the tribe of Judah, meaning that he's coming out of the, the nation of Israel, that he's coming out of Judah. That's true of him. But he's also, what is he? He's the root of David. It's one thing when scripture refers to this this individual, this Messiah that would come as the the son of David. But here, he's being referred to as the root of David, the place that David draws his own being from. Yes, he's the son of David, but he's also, he's much more. He's the one that David has drawn his identity from, the one that kings, good kings, draw their image from. And this this lion of the tribe of Judah, he is intended to represent not just uh, an earthly king, but the true image of a king. And John has to be overjoyed at this thought. They've found the one who will open the scroll, the true king, the one that can unseal what's been sealed. Of course, we have someone sitting on the throne who's holding this scroll, who is the king of heaven. And so it seems so strange that we need someone else to come along to open the scroll. But we continue reading where ben, ben picked up. And between the throne and the four living creatures, now remember, the creatures are around the throne. They're in close proximity to it. And, and between them and the throne, essentially adjacent to the throne, in the same presence as the one who sits on the throne, and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, I want you to think about these two images here. Um, we've got the lion, this fierce, majestic creature, uh, this this uh, thing that is overwhelming in its presence, something that could be feared even. Uh oftentimes, when we think of lions, we think of this unrestrained power. We think of it as, as something that is um, terrifying and and horrible. But then there's this contrasting image here. And and we have maybe the wrong idea about it. Um, oftentimes we think about this image of a lamb, And we think of a a small sheep, like a a youngling, a lamb that is um, weak in some ways. Uh, And that's not the image that's being conveyed here. It's between the throne, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, this should draw to mind the image of the actual Lamb, a, a creature that would have been offered as a sacrifice and it has been slain. Uh, I've read a lot of commentaries about how if, if we were to depict this in a, an honest way, it would be gruesome. It would be um, heart-wrenching in some ways, especially in our modern society where we are so removed from the, the death of the animals that we consume. Uh, we're not used to this imagery and it would be shocking to us. Uh but this is not a, a snowy white lamb, a small little Mary Hatta kind of creature. Um, this is this is a lamb that's described in great detail. As a matter of fact, um, it has seven horns. It has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So this is a horned lamb, a, a, a ram. This is a, a a fearsome beast in some ways, a creature that is. Uh, uh, tremendously impressive. And I, I went on this whole uh, spree this last week looking at uh, different images of rams that we might encounter in the ancient Near East, um, specifically in Israel at the time of the writing of this book, and of course, we don't have uh, uh, an idea of the specific kind of lamb that this would be, uh, but there are a whole bunch of different lambs in this world, uh, rams that grow uh, two horns, rams that grow four horns, rams that grow like six horns, and they're these crazy looking creatures. Six is a very rare occurrence, but uh, the idea here is that their whole head is kind of shielded. It's almost like a crown that's been created. And so I wanna contrast the image Of the lion that you see here on the screen with the image of a ram uh, the image of a creature with these these horns that uh, come up over its head uh, that that crown it in many ways these horns are the symbol of strength they're a symbol of power Uh, they are a symbol of authority in some ways Uh, how do you know which which ram is uh, the king of the uh, flock, it's the one that has the most horns. It's the one that's been allowed to grow the biggest. The one whose horns have become the most unruly in many ways. Um, and this creature, this this lamb that was slain, is described as a, a multi-horned ram, and it's contrasted with the image of a lion. and And we sometimes think that these two images are incompatible. On the one hand. We have John hearing that he's going to see the lion, and he turns and he sees the lamb. And Jesus is both. Jesus is not just the lion of Judah, this, this fearsome, powerful, majestic creature. He is also the lamb, also a, a fearsome, powerful, majestic creature, but a creature that was deeply associated with sacrifice, that's life would often be given for the benefit of the individuals who are offering the lamb. And it's the lamb that is worthy to take the scroll and to open it, to break the seals. And he takes it and there is is this chorus of angels. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain in your blood, by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. It's, it's a whole worship service. In fact, there are multiple uh, worship hymns that are spoken here. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We sang that last week. Uh, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We sang that last week in preparation for these images that we see. Chapter 5 tells us this. Jesus is the one who is worthy not just to to offer himself as a sacrifice for us, but to execute the will of God. To do what God has said from the beginning he would do. And to do things that we couldn't even anticipate would be done. In fact, uh, the idea here is is so foreign to us uh because we don't execute wills the way that we would have back in Roman times that we have difficulty comprehending how how Jesus can be the one to open the scroll uh to be the one to to break these seals uh if if in fact Jesus and God are both the deity, both are our our Lord um, and yet Jesus is told uh, he tells us rather that he's been given the right to judge he's been given the throne he's been given the opportunity to to essentially claim the throne of heaven and thereby claim the throne of earth as well and as he takes the scroll we we have this beginning of the opening of the seven seals in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now I watched, and when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Now we, we uh, in our modern day, are pretty familiar with the imagery of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I want to tell you, I think um, we have, to some extent, over-dramatized this imagery. Not to say it's not dramatic, but we've maybe changed the meaning of some of it in our thinking and the way that we handle this scripture. Um, For most of history, when we arrive in the book of Revelation at this first horseman, this white horse, what we're supposed to hear Is not an ominous thing. In fact, it wasn't really until the 1800s that anyone associated this particular moment in Scripture as a negative connotation, this first horse. Um, For most of history, we said that the white horse was Jesus, that he'd been given the right to come and conquer. In fact, if you think about it, uh, up to this point, in the book of Revelation, the term conquer has been used to describe what God's people will do. That they will, they will have victory, that they will conquer, that they will triumph. Uh, this is a good thing. Not a bad thing. A good thing. Greg actually referred to this last week in his communion thought. Uh, conquering is not supposed to be a negative signal here to us. And as Jesus begins to open, as the Lamb begins to open the scroll, that's the first thing that we read about, is this this conquering situation. And it should, in many ways, immediately draw us back to the language that's happened earlier in the book. Conquering is beginning. Something is being overcome. There is a thing that is being triumphed over. And the one that sits on this horse, the rider on the white horse who's been given a crown and a bow, a bow meaning this this uh, kind of ranged weapon that was precise and accurate and intended not for, for uh, sweeping executions of all things, but to target exactly what it was aimed at. This first horse is our savior. And it's possible for us to read it in ways that are drastically wrong. But the people who read this book, this, this letter, this revelation for the first time, are hearing the echoes from the first few chapters of this theme of conquering, and the only one that they could possibly associate this writer with is the one that they know will bring them triumph, the one that they know will bring them victory over whatever it is that's about to come. So we have these four horsemen. We have the the white horse, Jesus, who has come to conquer. Here's the thing. If the white horse wasn't Christ, why would people be rejoicing over the breaking of this, this seal? If this wasn't good news... Why would they be excited about the seals being broken? Now, I want to be clear. Some of what we're going to read is a little scary. It's a little terrifying. It's supposed to instill in us a bit of dread, but with the constant reminder in the back that the white horse has already been unleashed, that the rider on the white horse is already present in the narrative. Whatever comes next, it's going to have to deal with the rider on the white horse. And so we find the second seal is broken. And that seal unleashes this red horse, this, this creature that is ominous. And I want to read about it in the exact words that John uses, because I think um, we can have all sorts of ideas about what this, this red horse is. But I think the words spell it out very clearly. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. So that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Notice that there's a a contra- uh, contrast here. The first rider has a bow it's it's an accurate, precise weapon. it aims at its target this This second rider just has a a sword, a great sword that is intended for swinging wide and causing destruction it's not It's not a sword that's intended to pierce an individual; it's a sword that's intended to cause. Great damage to a multitude of people. This is the, the war horse. The horse that represents strife and struggle between nations and between individuals. It's, it's the horse of murder. It's the horse of kings who have no respect for the people that they rule over. It's, it's nations that war with one another. But the white horse is already out. The white horse has come. Why why is war still here? Why is war on the scene? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. It's something we have to ponder, and it should inform in some ways our reading of these next several uh, seals that are broken. Then we come to the the third seal, the the black horse, and as that seal is pulled back, John describes the black horse, and I'm tearing my scroll. This was probably not the best way to do it. I don't have a picture in here, so I'm not too worried about it, but uh, So we peel back that third scroll, and as it's opened, again, we have this statement. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine." There are a lot of things that this horse has been called uh, over the course of the years. Uh, a lot of people call this the horse of famine because it talks about uh, what seems to be a scarcity situation. Uh, that that you have someone that's precisely weighing and then uh, uh, the cost of the wheat, the cost of the, the supplies that are being purchased is very high. It's important for us to see that. Uh, that a denarius was... Like an entire day's wages. Uh, actually, it was 10 times more than it was appropriate to be uh, uh, spent on what's being talked about here. It was, it was exorbitant pricing for the things that were being sold. And so the idea that a lot of people have is that this represents famine. Uh, because whatever's being sold is scarce. And what's being spent is a tremendous amount on it. But the scales are a key part of this image. And the scales are important for us to remember. This is the idea that there are systems in this world that are about money, about the sale of things, about uh, the trade of things. And oftentimes the scales of those trades are not balanced. It's it's about this system in the world that exists that is often unfair to those who are downcast, who have nothing. It's this black horse represents a system in this world that exists. You have the system of war. You have the system of maybe, I don't want to say corrupt commerce, but corrupt scales, imbalance in our world. And then you have this this fourth seal that's broken. And this is the pale horse. And this is maybe the one that we're most familiar with. I don't know. Uh, I I'm... A fan of Johnny Cash. Uh, and he had a song that was all about when the man comes around. A beautiful, beautiful song. It, gets me, it gives me chills. And it is intended to describe the return of Christ in many ways. And he ends by reading about this pale horse that appears. Um, and it always, it literally sends chills up my spine when I listen to it. This is what the book of Revelation describes as the pale horse. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its, rider, its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So you have four horsemen, and this fourth horseman is described as essentially all the things in this world that lead to death that in many ways are outside of the hands of man. It's just life as usual in a broken world. Pestilence. Famine. Killed by the sword, yeah, but it's it's important for us to recognize here that death is this strange aberration. It's it's this thing that's not really a a, a part of creation. It's unleashed on creation. And you have the, the three horses that represent these three systems, these three negative things, these three facts of life in many ways in our world. And they all follow the white horse. The one that's been sent to conquer. The one whose conquering is, in fact, an echo of the conquering that we as Christians will will have in this world, the overcoming that we will have in this world. And so the white horse comes, but still, there are troubles in this world. And we look at it and we think, well, is Jesus unleashing these things by breaking the seal? Is the lamb letting loose these things by breaking the seal? And the truth is, we have to remember, this is a document, It's what's been said about what will happen. The Christ will come. The the rider on the white horse who will have triumph will come. And yet there will still be warfare. And there will still be unjust scales. And there will still be famine and pestilence and death. We get to that point and we're like, don't open any more of those seals. I don't want to know the rest of the story. This is bleak and sad and depressing. Jesus, don't open the next seal because it just seems like too much. What's the point of the writer on the white horse if all these things continue to happen? Well, I want I want to read to you what John says here in this next section. What the revelation is to us about these, these horsemen. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, when that that next seal, the fifth seal is open, these martyrs ask the same question we've been asking as we go through these horsemen. Why, if the rider on the white horse has come, do these things continue to happen? Why is our world broken? I thought he came to conquer. Why is it like this? And like the martyrs under the altar, these individuals whose blood has been shed, there is some sense of, where is your justice? This is what we're waiting for. For you to reveal your justice. So we have the seven seals, the four horsemen, the martyred who call for judgment, which leaves us with this statement that they're there is now the time of judgment. And as we open that next seal, as the, the, the sixth seal is laid bare, we read this, what we would use uh, the word apocalypse to describe nowadays, um, this apocalyptic moment. When he opened the sixth seal... I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken for a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? See, the the first five seals, they tell us a story. That the conqueror will come. The rider on the white horse has arrived. He's he's begun the process. And yet, these other three horses are still allowed to roam. They're still allowed to run free for a period of time. They still exist. And we might, as the martyrs did, question why it is that they continue to exist why it is that they continue to do what they do, and they call for judgment, and God's answer is to send the judgment. We're told here that all those things in this world that are broken will be set right. This idea of an absolute leveling of all things is not a strange new appearance in the book of Revelation. In fact, uh, in in the ancient prophets, it was often talked about how uh, the high places would be made low and the valleys would be brought up and things would be made level. That that in the day of judgment, there would be nowhere to hide. There would be nowhere to escape the judgment of God because all things would be laid bare. And that's essentially what's happening here in the sixth seal. It's this this moment at which God makes Plain and clear all things. That creation is no longer a place to hide in. It is the place where God lays bare the intentions of all men. Kings and rulers and the lowly. Every person is now laid bare to the wrath of the Lamb. And that's a little bit scary to us. Because we don't like the language of wrath. We don't like the language of, of punishment or judgment. But the sixth seal tells us that there is a time that comes that all of these things that are wrong in our world and all the people who support those things that are wrong in this world will face a leveling, a reckoning, a setting right. And the weird thing about the book of Revelation is that it's kind of like a russian nesting doll in some ways because we don't get to the seventh seal just yet we kind of stop for a moment and there is this distraction but not really a distraction from the seals for just a moment um so when i was when i was a kid (laughs) this is a diversion and many of you know i like to go on diversions um When I was a kid, I would read the book of Revelation and I had no concept of a seal like this. Uh, And I thought of a seal like the sea creature, the seal. And this took on an even more gruesome image than uh, just the slain lamb. I thought that, like, the scroll had seals on it and, like, Jesus was tearing them apart. And that was a terrifying image. I don't know why I shared that with you other than the fact that it popped into my head just now. Um, There is this moment where the seals are set aside... And some kind of activity happens. And we are called back to this this moment that happens. After this, before the seventh seal is opened, but after the sixth seal has been opened. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God the seal of the living god this mark that says this is this is mine this is the one that belongs to me you can trust that this is authentically mine in the same way that a letter might be sealed do not uh, sorry um then I saw another angel ascending from rising from the sun with the seal of the living God and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads and I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel and so we have this listing of 12,000 individuals from each one of these tribes and uh, this, is, this is maybe one of the most misunderstood sections of this whole, whole passage here. We have the 144,000. They are the tribes of Israel, individuals from the tribes of Israel. And this is what John hears. But when he turns and looks what he sees in chapter nine or verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This 144,000 and this innumerable group of people, they're really supposed to represent the same people in the same way that when John hears the Lion of Judah and he turns and sees The lamb that was slain. Here John hears the 144,000, these these, uh, number that have been called out of the different tribes, and it's intended to draw to our mind the census of the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, where they would create an army, essentially, by pulling men out of these tribes, these 12,000 that would then build an entire army. This was Uh, war language that happens here. The conqueror, the man on the white horse, the rider on the white horse, who is also the lamb who was slain, who is also the Lion of Judah, is looking for an army. And he calls out of the tribes of Israel his army. But when John looks, what he sees is an army of individuals called out of every tribe and every nation because Israel in heaven... Is not just the ethnic group that descended from Abraham through Isaac. It is all people who are called by the name of God, who wear the seal that God has given them. Now, as we get further into the book of Revelation, this idea of a stamp, a seal, a mark is going to play out significantly and I want to be up front with you. Um there is a lot of bad theology out there about what the seals mean. Uh there is a, a a second alternative seal that people receive in the book of Revelation. A seal on their hand or on their forehead that is called the the seal of the beast, the mark of the beast. Um it's it's not what you think it is. Uh, In fact, if I could title this whole series in any way, I probably would have titled it. It's not what you think it is. But uh, the truth is, when we read about these seals here, it is indicative of uh, a mark that identifies a person as belonging to a particular group. And that mark is not a physical stamp, a physical seal, a physical thing. It is intended to draw our mind To the idea that what happens in here, or what happens with these, reflects the one that we've been sealed by. We'll talk a lot more about that down the road, but I want to be clear. This 144,000, this army of every tribe and tongue and nation that's waving palm branches, they've been sealed by God, and that seal is significant. It's, It's authenticating. It describes His people group, and everyone who bears this seal is a part of this 144,000, which is just a representative number to say a very large group of people called out, set apart, made different from the rest. There are a lot of other points I can make about all this. As I said before, I could preach on half of these chapters for six hours straight. I'm going to not do that. I'm going to spare you all that this morning. But I want you to think about this, this this army that's being called out by the rider on the white horse, the conqueror, the lamb that was slain. This is what John describes to us. There's a question that happens here. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. This is a difficult passage for us to wrestle with because our, our culture has so misconstrued some of the words that are used in here. And the one I want to focus on for just a moment is this idea of the tribulation. Um, When I was in high school, through my early college years, uh, many of you are probably familiar with this series. There was a series of books called The Left Behind Series. And uh, they were these very um, quick-paced, catchy, uh, kitschy, uh, novels about a very literal interpretation of the book of Revelation, at least literal in the sense that they wanted to be literal and very figurative in other ways. I read the whole series. It was very, as, as like pulp novels go, they were very entertaining. Uh, as far as good theology goes, they were tremendously poor theology. Uh, they developed this whole idea that was not unique to them, but unique especially to early 1900s Christianity uh, that hadn't existed really before this point of a tribulation that was to come. A period of time in the future where things would get really bad for all of humanity that was directly related to this leveling of the earth, the judgment moment, the skies falling down, the sun blocked out, the, the moon turned blood red, the mountains leveled, earthquakes and fire and all of this ideology that 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 was this tribulation. But the truth is, when the book of Revelation uses the word tribulation here, it's not talking about one specific moment in which things get really bad. It's talking about our world, period. Our world is a tribulation. It is, it is in many ways in constant state of chaos and upheaval. I, I don't think we have to look very far to find examples of that. We have people that hate other people. We have people that cheat other people. We have people that, that uh, cause war and struggle and strife. And it's not something that's unique to our time. And it's not something that was unique to the time of the Christians who read the book of Revelation for the first time. These three horses, yeah, they come after the rider on the white horse, but they were already here, too. They are the state of our world, apart from some activity on the part of that conquering horse, the the rider on the back of this horse. But there's a group that's been called out of that tribulation. There is a group that's been removed from it in some way and it's not that they've been spared the troubles of this world it's that they don't contribute to the troubles of this world that what their activity is what their hands have committed themselves to what their hearts and their minds have committed themselves to is something other than the tribulation's Of this world. The ones coming out of the Great Tribulation, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have taken on a brand new identity and rejected the world and its systems. The rider on the black horse, the rider on the red horse, the pale horse. They have conquered along with the Lamb the systems of this world. They're his army and they will be instrumental Moving forward in the Book of Revelation in overcoming further. Remember, the Book of Revelation is a lot of already but not yet. It's happened and it is happening, and eventually it will have happened. All are true, all are realities. This chapter ends with this phrase this this additional kind of hymn. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This this hymn here is a study in drawing imagery from the Psalms, in, in drawing vivid vivid details that resonate deeply within us if if we are students of the Psalms. And they talk about a God who is intimately involved in the lives of these people, the ones who have been sealed by him, who have committed themselves to his ways, who have been called out of the world, and although they haven't been sheltered from the trials of this world, they have not contributed to the trials of this world. And in their in their refuge in the Lamb, they do find strength and solace, and ultimately they find themselves besides the beside the stream of living water. This is where we have to stop today. Um, where we need to leave things for just a moment because there's another seal that opens up and within that seal is so much more. And if I started it, I wouldn't be able to not finish it. And so uh, I want to leave you with two thoughts from the passages that we've read today. Uh, Oftentimes what we hear in Scripture is one thing and what we see is something else. And sometimes we get frustrated by that because what we hear and what we see don't often immediately line up. And, and we, we become frustrated and we become flustered because it doesn't make sense to us. But as we, as we begin to process and think about what God is ultimately doing, these two images begin to intertwine with one another. And if we think about the reality of what God is saying and the reality of what we are seeing, Oftentimes there are things happening that are are beyond our natural perception. Um, The idea of a triumphal lamb or a triumphal lion and a slain lamb seem very counterintuitive until you know the story of the cross and the resurrection. The idea of power and, and servitude seem contradictory until you know the story of the God who became man so that he could serve man to bring man closer to God. These are difficult things for us to reconcile because they don't always fit into our ingrained image in our head. And John is showing us here through the revelation that God has given to him that oftentimes we need to adjust our perspective And we need to turn our eyes towards what God is doing and not just fixate on the words that we're hearing. This is what God has said, and now I've created my own mental image of what that looks like, but God is pulling my eyes towards what it is he's actually doing. That God's activity is always consistent. The lion and the lamb imagery are consistent with one another. But our understanding of either one of those things needs to be in line with God's understanding of those things. So that's point number one. We have to adjust so that what we hear and what we see resolve with one another through the lens that God is giving us. That's a big point. Uh, I apologize. It's a, a very wordy point. I'll try to make the next one smaller. second one is this. The rider on the white horse has arrived. The rider on the white horse has arrived. And we may ask, when is the judgment coming? When will God make things right? The answer is, he is making things right. And for some of us, it can be a present reality. We can both be shielded from the tribulations of this world at the moment, while still be experiencing them as well. These are not incompatible ideas if we look at them through God's lens that we can, in fact, by not contributing to the systems of this world, be shielded from the wrath that will be poured out on the systems of this world. The rider on the white horse has already arrived. What happens next is being revealed to us. Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled by the fact that we, we oftentimes just don't see things clearly. Our, our vision is blurred and skewed. It is distorted by the realities of this world. And we struggle to reconcile what we know to be the truth that you have spoken to us with what we see in this world. And yet you tell us if we, if we fix our eyes on Jesus, our, our vision is made clear. And so we pray desperately that you will align our vision so that we can see through your eyes. So we can see what you are doing. So that we can commit our hearts and our minds to what you are doing. So that we can be your sealed people. So that we can wear the white robes and we can can move ourselves from being in the world to being those who stand apart from the world so that we can be the people who, while experiencing the trials and difficulties of this life, do not contribute to them ourselves. Help us to be that kind of people. Help us to be overcomers. Help us to be conquerors. Help us to stand firm and praise you in the face of tribulation. Help us ultimately to affirm that the Lamb is worthy. It's in his name that we pray amen at this time uh, we're going to move into our communion uh, and Josh Rockwell will be bringing us our communion thought today uh, let's let's remember the lamb as we do so. We want to thank you all for being with us this morning. It was uh, a pleasure to worship with you. I want to remind you again, next Sunday at 7 o'clock p.m., we will be having our drive-in service at the church building. Uh, our plan right now is every other Sunday. Um, we are working our way towards uh, making it something that is a, a really powerful and meaningful experience. I know it was for me last week. Uh, I've heard from another number of individuals who participated that it was for them as well. Um, and I'm behind the screen. There we go. Uh, and so we want to encourage you to be involved in it as well, if you're able to. Um, we want to invite you to be there uh, and join in worship with us. Um, just want to remind you, as we close out our service this week, that uh, the Lamb who was slain, he he has all authority. He is worthy. He is both the Lion of the Tribe of Judah and the lamb that is worthy to open the scroll. He is both the root of David and also the ancestor of David who would claim the throne. He is both God and man. Our, our solidarity, uh, the, the one, the deity who has chosen to take up the cause of humanity so that he can overcome this world and we, along with him, can overcome this world. Um, Jesus is, is a walking... Uh, compare and contrast sort of situation and we uh, we celebrate that uh, together um, so we uh, from the Dunning family uh, and Lorinda who's in the living room uh, we say we love you and uh, we look forward to seeing you again bye bye,
1: bye. <laughs>
0: have a great day
2: okay. hey dad hey Emma
0: can I see these um
2: No, those are mine.
0: Oh, yeah. I need some coffee. It's the funniest. Wait, I want to see...